I don't know about you, but I find that the more I uh, train myself in, in walking in a kingdom presence, king, the kingdom now, uh, just being defined by the love that flows in me and wants to flow through me, and I do that on a moment-by-moment basis, there's two things that seem to happen simultaneously. One is that I, I find that I, um, my, my disposition is more defined by joy and peace, God's joy and God's peace. There's just a, a joy and a peace that kind of characterizes life. But at the same time, I find that I, I, I find the world more painful. And if you don't understand how joy and pain can not only exist together, but increase alongside of each other, I can't explain it to you. But I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about. As your heart becomes more of a Christ-like heart, you feel things more deeply. You just, you're more alive is what it is. The joys are more joyful, but the pain is more painful. And this last week, I think we all experienced some of that pain with the tsunami disaster that has uh, happened last week. Watching the news, uh, just following how this thing has unfolded has just been, I, I find it to be just very, very painful. Uh, that level of suffering and this magnitude of pain is, is, you can't get your mind or heart around it. Some of the stories that uh, people tell, it's just, there are times where I got to turn it off just so I can, you know, not, not be obsessing on it all the time. And for that reason, I, I, I had a message that I had planned on, on giving today, but I really felt like I, I wanted to postpone that till next week. That's a good message. Come next week. But I, I wanted us to just think through some, think about this. This is one of the greatest uh, disasters in modern history. Uh, already there's about 150,000 people that we know are dead, and they're saying that when it's all said and done, it might be over 200,000, about half of them children. And so I just want to think through this a little bit. And, and what does this mean? How do we process this? How do we get congruity in our minds and communicate congruity uh, to other people about this? I got a call this week from a reporter who wanted, from Kansas who wanted to know my take on this. And basically his question was this, did God cause this or did he simply allow it? But either way, what purpose did he have in it? How does this make the world a better place? Uh, how does this fit in with the plan of God? And see, the assumption behind this question is a widely shared assumption, and that is that God was directly behind this, either ordaining it or allowing it, but if he allowed it, it must have been for a, a greater divine good. And uh, that's, that's a, it's a widely shared assumption. I, I watch frequently this show on the History Channel called The Wrath of God. Have some of you seen that show? And it's all about disasters. I have tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, diseases, whatever. And, um, uh, but it's called the wrath of God. And the assumption is that whenever bad things happen, it's because God is ticked off. It's time to press the earthquake button, and now let's have a plague. Uh, let's, oh, let's increase the AIDS epidemic. And he's just up there kind of pushing the disaster buttons for whatever reasons. In our official documents, the only place where God is mentioned anymore is when it, in insurance documents and things like that, they refer to acts of God. And they mean by that a disaster. Barring an act of God, you will do this. 
They never say, you know, barring a blessing from God. If you get outrageously blessed and decide not to buy this house but a bigger house, well, then it's can't. It's never, never like that. The act of God is always associated with disaster, with pain, with wrath. And it's a widely shared assumption that's been with us since about the 5th century. I want to offer here a different perspective on this. And there's no way I can cover all the questions that arise here. I've dealt with this kind of question a lot in writing. Uh, the book Satan and the Problem of Evil is all about that, and Is God to Blame is all about that. Uh, what I'm going to give here is just a, a, different, a, a snippet of a different way of looking at this issue. And for some of you, you've heard some of this before. For some of you, this is going to be very different than anything you've heard before, and I just encourage you to keep an open mind. And I don't share this as dogma, but I share it as my way of thinking through this, this, the, these sorts of issues I believe it's solidly rooted in Scripture. I believe it's, it's, in fact, I know that it was the dominant way of thinking about the problem of evil and natural disasters in the early church. But I'm also very aware that it's uh, a minority view today. So I want to entitle this message, Being the Kingdom in a Groaning Creation. Being the Kingdom in a Groaning Creation. And before I start, I want to open with a word of prayer. Father, I, I would just pray that uh, whatever else comes out of this sharing, that, uh, Lord, um, our minds and our hearts would be depolluted from anything that would make you out to be in our minds less lovely and less good than you really are. And I pray, Lord God, that you increase our vision, our vision of you as, as manifested in Jesus Christ, and I pray, Lord God, that out of that vision, we would be inspired to be kingdom people in a, in a creation that really is suffering, a, a groaning creation. And help me bring clarity and congruity to our thoughts about you in this war zone world in which we live. Holy Spirit, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start at the beginning. And by the way, there's going to be a lot of scripture thrown at you here. If you're taking notes, prepare to write quickly. Uh, it's, it's going to be very intense on the front end. I want to give a scriptural analysis of this thing, and then I'm going to just draw out four sort of summary points. To begin, God made human beings. It says in Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Just note there that we were made in the image of God and we were supposed to do in a little fashion what God does in a cosmic fashion and that is have dominion. He put us in charge here. And our job was to reflect his character by how we carry out our job description. We were to be the lords, with a small l, the lords of this earth. God wants to be the lord of the entire cosmos, but because his aim is love, he doesn't want to do it unilateral, unilaterally. He wants to use mediaries, and we are the mediaries of his providence on earth. So our job is to reflect his character and his providential goals on the earth. That's part of our job description, to use the power we have in ways that reflect his character. What that comes down to, as Jesus taught us later on, is we are to be merciful as the Father is merciful. You have mercy when you use power over another in a, in a, for their betterment in a merciful way. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Keep your name consecrated, sacred. 
separate. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that, is, that, that was the job description of human beings from the start, to live in such a way and to relate to God in such a way that his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not automatically done on earth as it is in heaven because he wants his will carried out through mediaries, and that's us, his administrators. So out of our uh, relationship with him, we are to be the kinds of people by which God extends his loving providence over the earth. It was God's call from the beginning, and what the church is called to do is simply be the new humanity, which is really recovering the job description of the old humanity. Now, in, in the creation that we have now is not that creation. Something has fundamentally changed. In Genesis chapter 1, a few verses after the passage that I just read earlier, in verse 29 through 31, it says this. God said, now look at this. See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. I just want us to notice something here. In God's original creation, the plants were given for food. There was no violence the, the, the way nature operated and the way humans uh, uh, operated with nature, it reflected God's beautiful, merciful character, the character that is manifested on the cross of Christ. The creation exemplified that. Something has seriously changed because last I checked, uh, lions aren't eating, eating leaves anymore. <laughs> The hope of Scripture, the, the, the goal that God's driving at is to recover that creation. And when the, the kingdom of God, which is just the domain in which God is king, when that is fully and finally established on this earth, and the earth is restored to its original state, and human beings are once again restored as the, the, the rightful lords over this earth, then nature will return to that nonviolent state of being. And so it says, for example, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Humans will be, have dominion over this earth, but it will be a peaceful earth, an earth filled with love. And their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The, the creation will be reconciled to each other, and humans will, will be reconciled to nature. But something obviously at the present time has fundamentally changed because there's violence all over the place. Uh, eat and be eating, e eaten. The, 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 the nature is red in tooth and claw, Tennyson said. Something has fundamentally changed. Now, what has changed is this. We read in other passages of Scripture that I can't go into just right now. There was a rebellion in the angelic realm. Before there was a rebellion in the human realm, there was a rebellion in the angelic realm. God created angels like he created human beings with a free will so they have the capacity to love. And you can't have the capacity to love unless there's choice. Robots can't love. So God created creation uh, uh, and, 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 and introduced free will into the, the scheme of things, both at an angelic level and at a human level. There was an angelic rebellion. A certain percentage of the angels followed Lucifer as he became the adversary, Satan. Satan is the word that we use. 
and uh, led a rebellion against God. At some point, human beings got co-opted in that rebellion. You read about that in Genesis chapter 3. We, we, we took the authority, the dominion that we were to have over the earth, and we surrendered it to him and to that realm. And things, as a result of that, have become incredibly screwed up. What I want us to see is that that rebellion didn't just affect human beings. It affected everything that was under human beings. When, when, when a, a, an agent, a morally responsible agent that has dominion over an area, when that agent goes corrupt, everything under uh, the power of that agent is to some degree corrupted. If a mother, a pregnant mother decides to snort cocaine, her baby is going to suffer. She still continues to be a mother, but now she's using her motherhood capacity, her dominion over that child. Instead of blessing that child, she's doing harm to that child. So it is in the structure of creation. And the angels fell, and that brought corruption in the earth. And then humans uh, were co-opted uh, in that civil war, and that has brought corruption on the earth. So it says this in Genesis 3. God said that because of this rebellion, because of this fall, because those who were designed to be lords of the earth have gone AWOL on God, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's going to require toil now. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Apparently thorns and thistles weren't there before. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust. And to dust you shall return. When human beings fell into, joined this, this rebellion, and we as a race are in a state of rebellion, the, the text here says that the ground was cursed. The physicality of the planet was affected by our fall. And now, taking care of this world, uh, which was supposed to be, come out of a, a center of joy in our relationship with God, now it involves toil. Now it involves just struggling to survive. Now it involves sweat. Now there are thorns and thistles. Nature does not easily bend to our wishes, and our wishes for nature are not altogether good anymore. And, and now death is introduced into the scheme of things. Dust you are, and to dust you shall return. What I want us to see is that none of that was part of the original creation. All of that is the result of nature becoming corrupt. The fundamental, the fundamental fabric of creation has been affected. Nothing operates exactly like it was supposed to operate. You can still see the glory of God in creation, just like you can still see the image of God in humans. But the glory of God in creation is somewhat clouded by the fall, just like the image of God in humans is somewhat clouded by the fall. Even the laws of nature, to some degree, have been affected by this cataclysmic rebellion that we're a part of. For example... Uh, one of the most fundamental laws of physics is the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that everything tends towards decay. Everything tends towards entropy. Everything tends to wind down. That's why we're getting older, and that's why we shall finally die. It's a law of nature. And in terms of the present world system, it's totally natural. We, can't, we have trouble conceiving of what it would be like if we, if we didn't wind down, if we didn't die. And yet the Bible tells us that death is an unnatural thing. It wasn't meant to be part of the original creation. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that the one who is the author of death is the one who's been a murderer from the beginning, John 8:44. His name is Satan. In John chapter 2, it says this, or Hebrews chapter 2, it says this. 
Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things. That's when he became a human being. And he became a human being so that through death, his own death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The one who has the power of death is the devil, and yet, if you're thinking just in terms of this present creation, nothing is more natural than, than dying. We don't want to hear this. This isn't the most pleasant thought in the world, but our job is not to just come up with pleasant thoughts. Our job is to think about things realistically and truthfully. And what is true is that this earth we are presently living in is not the original, pristine, beautiful world that God created. Some of that still remains. Thank God for that. But this world, to a significant degree, has come under bondage to a force that is hostile to God, hostile to humans, hostile to life, hostile to peace, hostile to love, hostile to all that is beautiful. The world is, to a large degree, under siege by that power. To the point that, and we need to take this so seriously, in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that Satan is the god of this age. And most Christians thinking, Satan is like a little footnote. You know, a little, a little, when you're tempted, yeah, then you think about Satan. But otherwise, it doesn't play a central role. But Paul says he's the God of this age. He's the principality and power of the air. Jesus three times in John calls him the ruler of this world, the archon of this world. Archon was a governmental term that referred to the highest functioning authority. He's the ruler of this world. He, uh, in 1 John, it says he controls the entire world. See, if, if you're... If you take Satan out of the equation, it's a, it's a great mystery as to how the world can be so screwed up and how tsunamis can happen. But if there is a sinister, evil God of this age, ruler of this world, principality and power of the air, who's controlling things, what's surprising is that there's not more tsunamis and not more death and mayhem. The earth itself has been affected by the fall. That's what I want us to see. So much so that Paul says this in Romans 8. Listen to this very carefully. Romans 8, verses 19 through 23. For the creation, the very creation now, waits with eager longing for the, reve- for the revealing of the children of God. It's talking about the restoration of humans as the lords of this earth. For the creation was subjected to futility. Second law of thermodynamics, folks. Not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay second law of thermodynamics, and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen to this. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This passage is packed with so much truth that is largely ignored today. The creation apparently has been subjected to futility. It's, it's in a bondage to decay. Uh, the whole creation, in the light of the angelic and human rebellion, the whole creation groans. How, how, how badly does it groan? Paul says it groans like a woman in labor. Some of you have been in labor, haven't you? Some of us husbands have witnessed our wives being in labor. It ain't pretty. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 I mean, there's nothing quite like that, is there? Some woman should be saying amen at this point. Uh, it, 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 is, it is, you're talking about some serious, you know, uh, pain going on here. And the creation is groaning like this. Ah! 
Was that a good imitation? And the creation is saying to the humans, you did this to me. This is all your fault. All right, all right. The whole, the whole creation is in this. It's not as it was originally created to be. It's, it's unbondage, this futility, this decay. And it's saying, when will the rightful rulers of this world be restored to their state and God as their Lord? When will, when will the revelation of the children of God be manifested, be manifested? When will God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? And Paul, when he's talking, thinking about the creation, he has in mind in first century cosmology, primarily the earth. When will that happen? When will it be restored? It's yearning for this. It's groaning for this. And Paul says, we ourselves are groaning. This is not how it was supposed to be. We ourselves are groaning. Because there's a whole lot going on in creation right now that is not God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And we who have submitted to the kingdom, where the king of the kingdom is our king and our life is being conformed to his wishes, Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits. And what he's saying here is that the entire creation will be brought once again under the dome in which God is king and we are the first evidence of this. We are to be the dome in which God is king now. And that's, that's the hope of the world, the, the sign that this is the direction that God is moving in. And uh, the whole creation and we ourselves yearn for this thing to finally be consummated. So I want us to see that uh, I think most of the time when Westerners think about the problem of evil or, 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 or about the fall or the rebellion, we think that it only affected human beings and that uh, the creation is pretty much the way it always has been. But I want us to see that the fall has affected everything. Nothing quite operates the way it was supposed to operate. Now, I don't have a lot of details. Of, I, I, I can only imagine kind of how it was supposed to operate. And, you know, it's hard to know what is of God sometimes, what's not of God, and, and, and whatever. But I know this. The whole thing's been affected, and it groans. It's in pain. It's in bondage. It has been seized by a power it was never supposed to be seized by. A power that is at war with God and at war with humanity and at war with all that is good. And this God of this age exercises a strong power in this world. Now, a couple other little things that are, that are interesting that sort of confirm this perspective. Uh, significations that something's gone wrong in creation. There was a time when, when Jesus was in a boat with his disciples and, and uh, a great storm arose to the point where the boat was almost ready to be capsized. But Jesus was sleeping, which tells you a lot about Jesus' mindset, sleeping in the middle of a life-threatening storm. But his disciples woke him up, and then it says this in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. He woke up and rebuked, epitamao, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, finao. And then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage, and we could spend a lot of time unpacking this thing. But those words, the rebuke and the be still, are the words that Jesus uses when he's, rebu when he's uh, rebuking demons. This is the behavior Jesus always exemplified and only exemplified when he was com uh, coming against a demonic force. In fact, the word for be still, fanao, the root of it means to choke. Shut up! That's what Jesus always did with, with demonic powers. And what it suggests is that Jesus recognizes that there's something demonic about killer storms. 
And we don't need to believe that there's a, a demon behind every tornado and behind every storm or, uh, you know, ice storms here in Minnesota or anything like that. But it does suggest that the world wasn't supposed to be the kind of place where people would drown in storms. There's the, it's because the world is under this diabolical power that human beings are no longer the lords over the earth that we were supposed to be. In fact, many scholars argue, and I think rightly, that what Jesus was doing here was recovering the power that Adam was supposed to have, the power of human beings to, to, to have dominion over storms. And so he, he was rebuking this. But it shows that there's something demonic in the way the world operates right now. Another passage, Luke 13. I could have used a hundred examples of this one. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. So he, Jesus heals the woman, and of course the Pharisees get mad because he healed someone on the Sabbath. So Jesus responds this way, You hypocrites! Don't each of you... On the Sabbath, untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water. And should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound, Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Now, what's going on there is Jesus is saying, the Sabbath is meant to be a break from work and labor because you know, now we toil and sweat. But it's not a break from mercy. You never take a break from being merciful. And you know that, Pharisees, because you're merciful to your animals, as you should be. But why would you not be merciful to this woman who's been afflicted by Satan? Now, the most fundamental point I want us to get out of this episode is this. You could explain this woman's illness, I believe, on strictly natural terms. Uh, she had what we would today call scoliosis. And, and uh, you can explain that by the laws of physics, at least the laws of physics that are operative today. You know, there's a certain amount of, of random mutations and cell multiplication and, and diseases and viruses and whatever. You can explain every disease in natural terms. And that's all fine and good. That's, that, that's true. But what this is telling us is that that's not the ultimate explanation. Because if the world wasn't in bondage to Satan, those laws wouldn't be operating the way they, they operate right now. And, and so here Jesus diagnoses that the ultimate explanation for this woman's illness was Satan. She was in bondage. In fact, the word that's used in the Gospels for disease is not the standard word in the first century. They use this word mastix. And the word mastix means to be flogged or whipped. And so what the perspective we're given in the New Testament is that the fact that our bodies run down, that we get diseased, that our eyes don't work right, that our backs get bent over, that we're deformed in different ways, is ultimately the result of our being flogged by the enemy, being flogged by the Satan who has, who has significantly gripped this world. Now again, let's not get crazy on this. It doesn't mean there's a demon behind every headache and a demon behind every, a specific demon behind every infirmity we might ever have. Because sometimes Jesus confronted diseases and healed them, and he didn't diagnose a, a, a spirit directly involved in it. But we are given the information that the ultimate explanation for why there is this kind of suffering at all in the creation is the result that the creation is in a state of rebellion. This is part of the groaning of creation. This is part of the, the bondage of creation. We've been seized by this power. A few verses before this episode in Luke chapter 13, we find another thing that's interesting. A tower had fallen on some people and killed some people. A natural disaster. 
We, I always put quotation marks around natural when I say natural disaster because I don't think there's anything natural about them. Not if you're using God's original design for creation as the criteria. But a tower fell on some people, and as always happens, people start saying, well, what was God's purpose in this? Why did God do this? And, uh, and you know, the, 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 it must have been the wrath of God. It was an act of God. These people must have been, you know, deserving this or something of the sort. But, but look what Jesus says. It's so interesting. He says, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? You, for example? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all similarly perish. What Jesus is saying here is this. When towers fall, you don't need to go looking for the hand of God uh, involved in it. Uh, the one thing you should worry about is how's your own relationship with God? Trying to divine you know, God, what, 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 what are you trying to tell us here with this tsunami? What are you trying to tell us with the World Trade Centers? You know, where, it, we, there are times in the Old Testament where God brought natural disasters on his people. Uh, he, he always warned them ahead of time. It was his kind of pedagogical tool to teach them how to walk with him. But he always told the people what he was doing when he did that. And there's no indication that he did that generally, that he did it to other nations, for example. Nor is it ever given as the ultimate explanation uh, for why disasters happen in general in this world. It was always a very sp specific, limited, thing. And what Jesus is here saying is that whatever God's uh, occasional purpose was for doing that in the Old Testament, you have no reason to think that he's doing that now. In a fallen world, disasters just happen. Sometimes in a creation that groans, towers are going to fall, and there may be people in the way. Sometimes even the law of gravity may work against us. Don't go looking for God, the, the wrath of God or an act of God in all the areas of creation that are, are, are inconsistent with God's will. We are, and I'll say more about this in a second, we're, we're to get our total clue about what God is like from the person of Jesus Christ. But I want us to see that from a New Testament perspective, the world that we're in now has been traumatically affected for the worse by the angelic and human rebellion that we're a part of. We are living literally in a war zone. So nothing operates quite the way it was supposed to. I want to say one other thing before I draw out the four points I want to draw out. And that is, in the early church, this is how everybody thought about these kinds of issues. Uh, the early church fathers, up to the 4th, 5th century, did not, their default wasn't to say, oh, the wrath of God, or this was an act of God. They unanimously, rather, diagnosed these sorts of issues as being the result of the world being in bondage to demonic powers. I'll just give you a, a, two examples, maybe three. Athenagoras, uh, a brilliant second century theologian, he says this, and he writes in kind of a complex way, so, so put on your thinking caps and follow this. He says, The office of the angels is to exercise providence for God over the things created and ordered by him. That's what the angels are for. God exercises a universal and general providence of the whole, but the control of the particular parts are provided for by the angels appointed over them. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying, just like we human beings were given a dominion, an area that we were responsible for to care for the animals and to care for the earth, that was our dominion. As we walk in right relationship with God and with each other, we have a right relationship with creation. That's what we were called to do. So also angels were given a dominion. They're put in charge of things. God oversees the whole. But he genuinely delegates authority both to angels and to human beings. 
He, he, he puts us morally responsible free agents in charge of certain areas of creation. He wants his will done in those areas, but it involves us saying yes to him in order for that to happen. It doesn't happen automatically because God didn't create a world of robots. He created a world where love is possible and therefore where agents are free. Now, Athenagoras goes on. Satan was originally the spirit, which is about matter, who was created by God just as the other angels were. He, he didn't eternally exist. He's not a second God. But uh, he was entrusted with the control of matter and the forms of matter. So Athenagoras believes, and I don't necessarily agree with him on this, but he, but he believed that uh, Lucifer, well, before his rebellion, was, was put in charge of all material things, like the laws of nature. That was, his, his job was to run them, which is why when he falls, he corrupts them. Satan, he says, chose to abuse the government entrusted to him. And thus the prince of matter, as may be seen merely from what transpires. Athenagoras is saying, look around, this is obvious. The prince of matter now exercises a control and management contrary to the good that is in God. The earth has become afflicted by a ruling prince, Archon, lord of this world, and the demons, his followers. And so what Athenagoras is saying is that Satan, before he fell, the traditional word we, we, we use for that is his, his name was Lucifer, which just means morning star, Lucifer from the Vulgate of the Latin. We don't need to get into that, but we call him Lucifer. And uh, so before he fell, Lucifer was, was the highest ranking angel, was given a lot of dominion over the material operation of the cosmos. When he fell, like a, like, like a pregnant woman when she starts snorting cocaine, she still has her jurisdiction, but now it's going to be used for the worst because she's become corrupted. She's going to harm her baby. So also when, Lu when, when Lucifer rebels and becomes Satan, the adversary, the creation under him suffers. And because of that, early church fathers were inclined to see all aspects of this world that, that are not good as being ultimately the result of wills other than God, whether human will or angelic will. So, for example, Origen, another second century theologian, says this. Famine, blasting of the vine, the fruit trees, pestilence among men and beasts. All these are the proper occupation of demons. Demons are the cause of plagues, barren, barrenness, temp, tempests, and similar calamities. He says in his work against Celsus. And Tertullian says diseases and other grievous calamities. He's also writing in the second century are the result of demons whose great business is the ruin of mankind. I think that the early church fathers actually went too far on this because they do tend to see a demon behind every tornado, behind every specific disease or whatnot. And I don't think we need to go there. It's enough to say, we don't know all that's going on in the spiritual realm, but we can know this. God is good and he pronounced the creation altogether good. And insofar as the creation now is not good, as, for example, when tsunamis slaughter 200,000 people, we can say that ultimately, whatever else was going on, ultimately that is the result of this creation groaning, the futility, the decay, the bondage that the creation is presently under. Okay, let me draw out four points from, from this whole thing rather quickly here. We only got 11 minutes. Uh, I tell it, would someone tell it to people in the children's area, I'm going to go over five minutes, because I really don't want to cut this short. Number one, oh, I'm going to cut it short, but it's still going to go over five minutes. Uh, number one, the natural world is not natural. We need to see this. The natural world is not natural. It's a war zone. Everything has been affected by this rebellion. 
Nature has been corrupted. Uh, the animal kingdom has been corrupted. It, 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 it looks more like it was designed by a roaring lion, lion seeking whom he may devour, which is how the Bible describes Satan in 1 Peter chapter 5. It, it, it's so filled with violence. Na- nature's been corrupted. The animal kingdom's been corrupted. Human nature has been corrupted. It's not the case that it's only human beings that are a little bit uh, skewed on an otherwise pure and pristine uh, uh, creation. No, the whole thing's been corrupted. We're not living on a vacation resort, folks. We're living in a war zone, and in a war zone, bad things can happen. We need to wake up to this. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, and, and it, you always know something's true if C.S. Lewis says it, so. <laughs> Almost everything. But especially when he agrees with me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> C.S. Lewis says, every square inch of the, the cosmos is claimed by God and count, claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by God. Every square inch of the cosmos is claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by God. There, it, what he's getting at is he's saying uh, this demonic oppression, it gets into everything. It, it's, it, we, and it's hard to sort out exactly what is original creation and therefore good and what's not because it's all so woven together. It's like the, the influence of the demonic in the world is kind of like the radiation. It gets into your clothes. It gets into the skin. It gets into everything. It, it's, it pollutes everything. Everything is tarnished by this. Now, what you also got to realize, as C.S. Lewis saw and as the Bible clearly shows, is that God is also everywhere present. See, some people think that if you say God doesn't meticulously control everything, which is what St. Augustine believed, and then after him the church kind of accepted that, that God is you know, specifically ordering by design the tsunamis and the Holocaust, and, and St. Augustine believed even people going to hell, because if God controls everything, including our free choices, he, can choose, he, he controls the choice of whether you go to hell or not. So it must be God's perfect plan for your life that you're born and then go to hell for all eternity, and that's true of the majority of people. Now, if you don't agree with that, that God meticulously controls everything, including tsunamis, some people go to the other extreme and, and they think, oh, well, then God's totally divorced from the world. He's up there, kind of a deistic God, not, not ever involved. But see, between these two extremes is this. God is always present. God is always active in the middle, but not coercing the details. He respects the freedom. He's given the freedom uh, to the angels and to human beings, but he's always present, influencing things, uh, working around things. He's always active. At every square inch, God is active. Uh, uh, At every moment, God is active in the world. But he's also coming against powers of evil, human evil, angelic evil. That also is influencing the world. It's a war zone. Every square inch is, is a war zone. Now, we, we don't know all that happens from God's involvement or any of the details about Satan's involvement. But I do know this. If God were to, for one second to withdraw himself from this world, instead of being operating every second at every moment, uh, this world would collapse like that. Uh, you want to see a tsunami, take God out of this equation. And uh, uh, the world would, because it's the Lord of death is reigning, and boom, this whole thing would be incinerated in a second. God's always active, but there's always forces that resist him. The second thing is God is not to blame. God made us free. God made angels free. And that involves a certain kind of risk. And he takes responsibility for that on the cross, but he doesn't take, he's not guilty for what free agents do. There's a, re, there's a good reason why he gave us free, this free will, because without it, we, we couldn't possibly love. We'd be robots. But now that we have the free will, what we do is we take responsibility for. If I decide to pick up this podium right now and smash someone in the front row's head with it, 
It would make sense to say, Greg, why did you do that? And it would make sense to hold me responsible for it. But you don't need to be saying, what's God trying to say to us? Because God didn't do it. I did. See, this is a Greg thing. Now, you can ask, why did God give me the power to do that? And there's an answer. Because if I didn't have the power to harm these people, I couldn't have the power to love these people. And love's the point of the whole thing. But God is not to blame. And here's why this is so important. You see, if, if we don't understand this point, then we tend to do what is so pervasive in our culture, to take the tsunamis and the AIDS epidemic and, and, and Auschwitz and, and everything else, and we think that some, somehow God's behind that, which can't help but to some degree pollute your picture of God. And to the degree that your picture of God is polluted, not lovely, not, not, not as he is in the person of Jesus Christ, that can't help but affect well, for a lot of people, it's affecting your ability to believe in God. But for others, even those who believe in God, it's going to undermine to some degree your passion for him. We can only passionately get behind something in our minds when our hearts can get passionately behind it. This is why Jesus, it, this is the center, you guys. Over and over again, Jesus taught this. The New Testament emphasizes this as strongly as it emphasizes anything. If you see me, you see the Father, Jesus says, John 14. Philip says, show us the Father. Come on, show us what God is like. Jesus says, have, have I been so long with you and yet you don't know me? If you see me, you see the Father. That's why Jesus is called the Word of God, John 1.1. 1, 1. The revelation of the Father, John 1.18. Uh, uh, he's called the image of God in Colossians 1.15 and elsewhere. Uh, he's called the perfect expression of God in Hebrews 1.3. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus Christ. And sorry, folks, but Jesus didn't go around causing tsunamis or natural disasters and orphaning little kids. That's not what Jesus did. Uh, his character was altogether different from that. And he has got to be, the fullness of the Godhead was, dwelt in him bodily, it says in Colossians 2.9. All we need to know about God is found right there. In this war zone world, it's so important to keep the name of God and the image of God hallowed, holy, separate, distinct. He's like this, not that. If we lose, if Jesus wouldn't have done it, you have no reason to think that God did it. How's that? Because you're, you're, the, the definitive revelation for what God is like is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we have, see, if, if we don't get that down, then the character of God and the purposes of God get all polluted. And uh, God gets mucked up with all the mire of, of the war zone. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Dying for, this, for the very people who are crucifying him, that's what God is like. Number three, live in hope. Eagerly anticipate the day when the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Look forward to this day. Someday the creation will be set free. In fact, and in principle already is. We're just moving towards it and uh, to, towards its full manifestation. Someday it will be set free from the bondage to decay. And it will be set free when the original managers, administrators, lords of the earth are restored to their state. When we are free, the creation will be set free. Paul says this in, in Colossians chapter 1. He is the head. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There'll be many more. So that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What Paul's saying here is this. Uh, in the Western tradition, we tend to think that Jesus' death and resurrection was just about us humans. Now, we're reconciled to God. But Paul has a cosmic picture. 
No, the whole creation's involved in this. God's recovering the entire creation. That includes us, thank God. But God is going to reconcile all things, going to bring peace to all things. Uh, the creation will be restored to the beautiful painting uh, of God that God intended it to be. It will be delivered from its bondage of de- uh, decay. Uh, when Jesus rose from the dead, that was the, he was the firstborn. He was showing what, the hope that the creation is moving towards. But uh, we are to know that it's moving in this direction. We live in a Good Friday world, folks, but Easter is coming. All right? We, we live in a Good Friday world. And on Good Friday, things don't look so good. On Good Friday, it looks like God is, is losing. On Good Friday, it looks like the devil is winning. On, on, on Good Friday, things look all screwed up. But you got to know Easter is coming. And Easter wasn't just about human beings. It was about the animal kingdom. It was about the laws of nature. The entire creation will be reconciled to him. And, and, and so we are to live, as bad as this Good Friday world is right now, we're to live with the joy and the anticipation of knowing that Easter is coming. The Easter for creation is coming. And someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. And the Bible says that then, then he'll wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no more bloodshed and there'll be no more tsunamis killing 200,000 people. There'll be no more cancer and there'll be no more wars. Then he will bring peace through the blood of the cross. Praise God. That's the hope we live in. There's one more point I gotta, I gotta make. And that is this, that as we anticipate this restoration of creation, we don't do it passively. Now get this. God's original purpose was to administrate the cosmos through us, and when we submit to the king of the kingdom and become kingdom people, he now starts to do that. He spreads his kingdom through us. And so my fourth point is this. In the meantime, while we wait for this Easter of creation, live the kingdom now and do it with passion. Be a kingdom person. In this world that is still under the stronghold of of an alien hostile force, God, in this violent, violent war zone world in which we're we're born, where violence permeates everything, uh, God is doing a different thing. And it started with the mustard seed of the kingdom on the cross and the resurrection. He planted a mustard seed, and now it is slowly spreading. Quite inconspicuously, the mustard seed grows largely under the ground, but it's growing, it's growing, and it will eventually take over this, this uh, uh, seized world. And you are the evidence of that growing mustard seed if you're a kingdom person, and so am I. So the most important thing for us to do is to be the kingdom, to, be, to let that mustard seed, uh, the, the Calvary quality love of the kingdom of God, take over our being. And by doing that, to let God use us to spread that mustard seed in this world. I felt, and I'm sure many of you felt, so hopeless this week. The level of of just cosmic cataclysm that went on uh, with this tsunami, it leaves you hopeless. And that's a Good Friday feeling. We have to put on God the responsibility for the cosmic redemption. I can't redeem the cosmos. But I do have a role to play, and you have a role to play, and it's an important one, and that is simply this. Be thoroughly, passionately a kingdom person. Be a, I read across a quote from Gandhi this last week. I love this quote. It just lands on me. It's like one of these, it just, it just cuts to the core of things. Gandhi said this. He said, be the change you want to see in the world the most important thing to do is just be the change you want to see in the world. 
far more important than talking about the change you want to see is just to be it. How do you want the world to change? Start with yourself. Be it. And that becomes an agent for bringing about that kind of world. It's so crucial. This is why our vision of, of, of who God is is so important. Get a picture of God being manifested in Jesus Christ. What does the creation look like? What do people look like? What does the world look like when, it, when, when that love, the love of Calvary, thoroughly, exhaustively uh, has reign in the world? Get a vision for that. And now do it. Be the kingdom. We are supposed to be windows into the, the, the kingdom of God that is coming, windows of heaven. Be now what the world shall be. That's being light in the darkness. Amen. Be the kingdom in a groaning creation. I can put it this way. Look at this world with all of its violence, with all of its ugliness, with all of its hatred, with all of its bitterness, with all of its self-centeredness. Look at the world and the violence on a societal level and on a natural level. Look at everything that's inconsistent with the character of Jesus Christ and reject it for your own life. Reject it. Purge yourself from all of that because you are a part of a different kingdom. Um, and, and, and just be the dome in which God is king and he uses that to spread the kingdom of God. When you do that, there's a whole lot that this world thinks is natural that you're not going to be doing. Uh, you, you, you'll, you'll stand out because you are the future. <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the already... You're the not yet in the already. You are what the world shall become, you see? And that's our, our purpose. This is where God's driving the world. We're walking advertisements for that. And oh, there's a whole lot that the world considers natural that you're not going to be doing. Violence is so natural to us in this fallen creation. If someone hits you, you hit them back. But Jesus says, be the kingdom. No, turn the other cheek. It's so natural to, to hate those who hate you and love only those who love you. Jesus says, no, be, be the kingdom. How do you want the world to be? Start. Be it now. Purge yourself of all those, those self-centered, uh, uh, violent inclinations and just be a peacemaker. Be a mercy maker, he says. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Uh, do good to those who despitefully use you. Be, be, be the world that, that you know I'm driving to. And now I can use you. I can use you to spread that kingdom. The best thing we can do for growing creation is to be the kingdom in the midst of a growing creation. I end with this. What does it mean for us as kingdom people to be the kingdom with regard to the people, the victims of the tsunami accident? And um, you know, that, that's something we just need, need to kind of live in, a, a question we live in. Uh, we, of course, need to pray for them and to spend some of our, our chips as kingdom people. God set aside a reservoir of power that we can cash in on through the power of prayer. So, so, so spend some chips on them, all right? Uh, uh, pray for them. That I find to be very hard. This week, I, my prayer sounded so shallow. I, 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 I honestly, how do you pr even begin to pray? It, it feels, but in faith we are to know that every prayer makes a difference in the world. Whether you see it or not, know that prayer makes a difference. So hold them up in prayer. By faith, knowing that, that it makes a difference. Another thing is just to ask, how can, this is, this is the question kingdom people live in. We live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us, and living in love is all about bleeding. So we ask the question, how can we bleed together? I, I, I'm sure a lot of you have already given to relief organizations. Uh, it's been really impressive the way the American people have, uh, have stepped up, um, and I've just heard some reports about it. Uh, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And so the overseers and, and I have uh, really felt God's heart in this way. Uh, we want to, for all those who haven't yet given to uh, the relief of, of the tsunami disaster, uh, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. 
And out in the gathering area, we have a table, and there's just a tsunami relief fund that we've set up. And if you would like to make a donation to that, we encourage you to do that. It's just about our bleeding together uh, to, to, to be the kingdom. Uh, to, to be the kingdom. Um, th- there is, you know, some would say, we're right now, as you, if you've been looking at the bulletin, we ourselves are in rather desperate shape financially. And uh, we, we need people to be faithful to the giving to the church. And some maybe would say, why are you trying to help out the people in Indonesia or, or Thailand when, you have, when we ourselves, you know, you, you might have to lay off some more people if the funds don't, don't pick up. And that's, that's a legitimate thought. At the same time, we have a roof over our head and some food in our stomach and water to drink. And, uh, and in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, you don't set aside common sense, but you put faithfulness ahead of common sense. And sometimes God says to be obedient in ways that are not very commonsensical. Sometimes I found personally, and now we're, we're doing this as a congregation, when you least can afford it, he calls you to sacrifice the most. And it's nuts. Uh, but if you're obedient to that, he'll take care of you. Uh, he honors that. That's what the kingdom of God, it, it always looks like Calvary. And so we don't know how this might, may impact the offerings of our church, but we feel led to, to make this available to people and to encourage you to give. So out in the gathering area, there's a tsunami relief fund that we encourage you to give to and also keep praying for them. Uh, as we close, the, the altars will be open. If you have any prayer need that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward, spend some time in prayer. If you're here this morning and you haven't uh, surrendered your life to Christ and entered the kingdom of God, I want to invite you to come forward up here at the table to my right, your left, up at the front of the auditorium. There'll be a person who would love to explain to you uh, what is involved in doing that. And let me just close with a short little prayer, uh, all of us joining our hearts together uh, for, the, for the people who have been affected by this tsunami. Father, we together agree that uh, this world that we now live in, Father, is, is under a diabolical stronghold, and, and, and we groan, Lord, we groan, our hearts groan, and we know that your heart groans, uh, God. And Lord, we just pray for these people. Uh, God, just, uh, we want to call in some chips right now to increase the level of influence of your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord God. Uh, especially right now in Sri Lanka where it's raining and these people, even the little forts they set up are being wiped, wiped away. Father, stop the raining. Uh, just cause it to cease. And we, we, we use whatever authority we have in the kingdom to come against spiritual forces that may be aggravating this situation. And we pray, Lord God, for an increase in the generosity of people around the world to help in this, release, this relief effort. And we pray, Lord God, that you, doing the masterful thing that only you can do, will find ways of, of, of bringing good out of this. And to somehow maybe turn it to the advantage of, of, of the kingdom of God on this planet, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, for, for uh, the peace that passes all understanding, not just for them, but for us as we continue to grieve over this tremendous uh, waste of life. And uh, lead us in our prayer and lead us in our giving to be the kingdom, to be kingdom people, thoroughly saturated by the kingdom, purged of, of all the elements of this fallen world. Help us to be the kingdom with regard to the tsunami people, but also with regard to our spouses and our children and the people we work with and our neighbors and to others who have needs all around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go out and be the kingdom. God bless you.